Lord, this morning, as we again look at the Word of God, and as we see the truth of Scripture, Lord, let us understand what is happening, that we can be ready, that we can be ready for anything that comes our way, any threat that comes our way, especially in the form of truth, but yet it is false, that we would be able to detect it, that our radar, spiritual radar would be up, and that we would be strong in the faith, in our understanding of the Word of God. So, Lord, we would not be duped by false teaching ever. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help us in this matter as we continue to add to our faith and as we add these things, we would gain stability and strength in our true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so this morning, we're going to be looking at the dilemma of false teaching. And we're, this is just part one of several parts because I want to lay a foundation in the Word of God about what it means to be a true prophet. And so Christians have been given, I've, I've been saying this over again, everything pertaining to growing in godliness, to life in godliness, as it says in Second Peter. And the Christians who are taking their spiritual life seriously and putting strenuous effort into it, they will develop spiritually, they, would, they will become strong, they will be adding the seven qualities of Second Peter, and of course, those who do and continue in it will not only become more holy and useful, will not only make themselves and the church more ready for the coming of Christ, they will also be more discerning in their present situation. And what I mean by that, where they live right now in time, by the regular transformation of the mind, the will, and affections with the scriptures, they will become strong because they know the scripture is sure and therefore reliable. The scriptures are light and therefore illuminating. The scriptures are truth and therefore revealing. And the scriptures are originate from God, and therefore they are trustworthy because of the source in which they come. So by the word of God, you will be more able to detect the threats to the church. And you may ask, what threats? Well, I've mentioned them already. Just as false prophets were a threat to the unity and purity of Israel, false teachers will also be a threat to the unity and purity of the church. But if you notice in verse number 1 of chapter 2, the little word but, really but links 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1 through 3 to 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 through 21. And what did that say in verse 19 of chapter 1? It says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
Now, the Bible is giving us there the, really the bottom line of what it means to be a prophet, a real prophet. They are going to handle the Word of God and receive the Word of God as they ought to. Now, of course, here we, we find that in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, and with 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, the prophetic message from God was given to the Old Testament prophets directly through the Holy Spirit. However, mingled in with true prophets are always false prophets and false teachers. For in verse, one, verse number 1, of chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people. Now this word for false prophet is really one, is, it, it refers to one who falsely claims to be a prophet and thus prophesies falsely. So here, in this first part of the verse, it's, it's referring to the Old Testament prophets. The second part of the verse is referring to New Testament false teachers, just as there will be also be false teachers among you. So he's going from the Old Testament to the New Testament and to when they lived back then and when, they, when we live now and when they lived then. So before we move forward in this passage, let's go back. Now, the reason why I had you read some of the Old Testament passages, and Greg read that this morning, is because I want to establish this morning what is the definition of a true prophet? So let's go back and let's get a good sense of what a true prophet is and how they differ from the activities of false prophets. Now, you may want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 through 8. I probably won't read all the verses, but I want to highlight some things in these verses that all of you right now have in your mind what a prophet is. Now you have in your mind that a prophet is someone who predicts the future. But do you realize that a prophet may be a person who never tells the future? Another idea that may be in your mind is that a prophet is a spokesman for God. Well, you would be right about that because the etymology of the word means spokesman, speaker on behalf of God, or Prophet is also mentioned in the Old Testament as a seer. They're the same thing, a uh, different word used. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that a prophet does not at times tell the future or that a prophet does not speak for God. What I want you to grasp is that a prophet is much more than this. The question should be, what is true of all prophets both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Well, then we'll, we'll really together discover a biblical definition of a prophet. And so you do need to look up some verses. I hope you're looking at those verses in your Bible wherever you're at. And ask yourself, while we're looking at this passage, what is running through each verse concerning prophets? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 through 8, notice this is the prophet Nathan in the Old Testament. It says in verse 1, Now it came about when the king lived 
in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said, notice, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And in verse 3, and Nathan said to the king, Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. And then notice in verse 4 and 5, but it came about in the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now, Nathan didn't study what God was going to say. He didn't know what God was going to say. But he was a prophet of God, and so God spoke to the prophet. Notice God doesn't speak to king, the king David here. He speaks to the prophet. And in verse number 5, notice what it says. Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord. Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? Now go down to verse number 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. Now that's the first passage, and you notice something in that passage that several times... When the word of God came to the prophet, it says the prophet went to the person he was supposed to speak to and says, thus says the Lord. The prophet didn't say, hey, listen, this is what I think you should do. He says, no, this is what God says you should do. And so that thus says the Lord gives us an indication of what a prophet is. Now let's look at another passage in 2 Samuel 24, verse 10 through 12 but I'm not going to read the whole passage. Look at down to verse number 11. It says, When David arose, 2 Samuel 24, verse number 11, When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. Now God is speaking to Gad the prophet. And it says, of course, it says here about the prophet, David's seer. So another word for prophet would be seer. And verse 12, it says, Go, speak to David, and look what it says. Thus The Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I may do to you. Now, this is when David numbered the people, and of course, he got in trouble for it. He sinned against God for it, and God says, okay, judgment's going to have to come upon you. You choose one one of three things, and of course, he chose what God would choose because he felt that would be the better way to go, and it was. But notice here... Gad says to David, thus says the Lord. Now, another passage in 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 17 through 19, but let's go down, well, in verse number 17 of chapter, 1 Kings chapter 21, it says, then the Lord, word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, now, of course, Elijah being a prophet too in the Old Testament, look at verse number 19. It says, and you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, the dog shall lick up your blood, even yours. In other words, that Elijah, being the prophet, goes and tells what the Lord has said. So what, what do we find about a prophet in these passages? 
we, we find that a prophet is someone who says to others, thus says the Lord, not thus says me, or this is what I think, or this is what the, the, the way I observe things. No, it says the Lord first speaks to the prophet, and then the prophet turns around and speaks to the people. So, in other words, God speaks directly to the prophet, a direct revelation from God, and if that's what a prophet is, then you would expect the word of God to speak towards a particular end of what God wanted to say through that particular prophet. See, there is always a prior situation uh, when a prophet speaks. God never gives a word to the prophet for the prophet himself. God always gives a word to the prophet for the situation or for the person, like the king or the priests or the people of Israel or of Judah. God always speaks to his prophets for his people. The word of a loving God to his people is what a prophet is. Uh, to the nation of Israel, to God's particular people. So God speaks when there's usually a problem among his people, some crisis, some need, some issue that comes up. The whole prophetic ministry is a loving God meeting the needs of his people. See, God speaks direct revelation, but it is occasioned by and related to the need among God's people. If God's people needs food, he would speak about food. If if they need discipline, he will speak about sin and about repentance. If the people need hope, he usually speaks about the Messiah through the prophet. If they need encouragement, he will speak encouragement through the prophet. So a prophet is a person to whom God gives this gift that Whenever there is a need, God speaks directly to that person, that is the prophet, and in turn takes the uh, message of God to the people. That is what the job of a prophet is. Now that is what it says, actually back in Second Peter, in chapter 19 through 21, where it said that the word of God never had its origin in the impulse, the desire, or the whim, or the will of man. They didn't think it up themselves. The Word of God is is not the product. It is never the product of human thoughts, genius, study, or cleverness. Divine revelation given to its authors and their interpretation of it was directed always by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit controlled every single word and ensured that every word that God wanted on that particular page when it was written, when it was spoken, when it was, then it was written, that uh, the very words he, he wanted to use were chosen and the thoughts he wanted to express were expressed exactly the way God wanted to do it. And that was the job of the prophet, not to mess it up, not to get it to the people in the wrong way, not to add his own conclusions to things, his own opinions to things, his own twist on things. He wasn't to do that. He was to give it just the way God said it. So all Scripture was superintended by the Holy Spirit and spoken through 
the prophets. So holy men, that's the prophets, that's the apostles, that's the men God chose to speak through. Holy men were carried along by the Spirit, and as it says in 2 Peter, like a, a sailing ship moved by the wind, the Spirit of God filled their sails in a sense, and they wrote Scripture. So all Scripture is God-breathed and divine. The Scriptures are the communication that God intended uh, to give his people. That communication is ordained by God's authority, and of course it's produced by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. As it says in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is inspired of God, and, and because it is, because the source of Scripture is God, it is pros- profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the prophet, and let's, let me say it like this, the prophecies did not originate in the prophet's own thinking, but from God's mind. That's always the case of a true prophet. Now, if a true prophet is one who receives direct revelation from God, then a false prophet is someone God has not spoken to, and yet they speak on his behalf. They tell the future, but it is not from God himself. Instead, they usually get it from dreams and visions and from their own mind. So, at this point, I want to look again back at the Old Testament and look at really the three, threefold description of false prophets' activities. And so there, it's really threefold. A man named Bukam has actually identified these three, and I'm just expanding on them this morning, but they are true to the Old Testament. The first passage I want you to look at is Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet, uh, chapter 23, verse 16 through 21. Now, the first point about the prophet's activities is that they pretended their proclamation was good news, and while they did that, they avoided prophetic warnings of judgment and replaced them with false promises of peace and security. Now, that's the same thing false teachers do today. They don't want to give you the bad news. They don't want to give you the negative news. They don't want to tell you that God is going to judge something. They want you to know that you can be healthy, wealthy, and fine, and they avoid the whole message of God, and that's the danger, and that's usually what false teachers prophets and teachers do. They leave things out, but they seem to have enough biblical information to be able to capture people's attention. Now look what it says in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 16. It says again, thus says the Lord of hosts. There it is. Uh, what a true, so Jeremiah being a true prophet, but notice what he says. It says, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you, They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. 
Now look at verse 17. This is kind of their message. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. Well, look at verse number 18. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? They surely haven't. That he should see and hear his word. Who has given heed to his word and listened? And then notice what Jeremiah says in verse number 19. This is what God says. Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath. Even a whirling tempest, it will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will turn back until he has performed and carried out the purpose of his heart. In the last days, you will clearly understand. Look at verse 21. I did not send these prophets, but they ran and they spoke on my behalf. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. So if Yahweh did not send these people to speak on his behalf, then that means they have no divine authority, right? These false prophets are saying peace and no calamity, and God is saying there will be wrath and there will be no peace. So, in other words, the, the prophet Jeremiah gives the whole message of God while the false prophets just pick and choose out of what think they think about what they should say, especially that of a positive message, and give it to the people, and yet it was not the message from God. So the first thing is that they always pretend to proclaim the good news, but they avoid prophetic warnings, and they usually replace it with false promises of peace and security. A second activity of false prophets is that there is no divine authority behind their message. I mentioned that, but notice in another passage, go back to Deuteronomy, uh, the beginning of the Bible there, Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is where when the people are going, going to go in the new land, of course, Deuteronomy is really means second. It means a, a second view or, or a teaching on the law, but usually in a more practical way. And so he's saying, listen, when you go into the new land, when you get into that new land, you are going to be confronted with false prophets. And this is what he says in chapter 18, verse 19 through 22. It says, And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Verse 20. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Verse 21 of chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, And you may say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is, the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of that person. So that means the, the people who are listening to a false prophet or are in the earshot of a false prophet has to know the word of God 
enough and what God wants them to do to be able to detect whether someone is speaking on behalf of God when they're not called to speak on behalf of God. In other words, they have no authority behind their message whatsoever. So they think they speak for God, but actually they don't speak for God. So that is the same uh, true today. And then the next passage, again, and a third activity of false prophets is that they were condemned by God for their lies, that God did not let them get away with saying just any old thing to the people because that means that they may have a greater hearing with the false prophet than God's prophets himself. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now, these passages are important, and I wanted to lay them out before we look further into Second Peter, because we have to know, today there's a lot of confusion about what, what a real prophet is. People are everywhere claiming to be prophets. And um, are there even prophets today at all? So that's the question that will come up later. But here in Deuteronomy 13, look at verse number 1, and the point here is that they are condemned by God for their lies. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true. Now, this is interesting. Concerning which he spoke to you, saying, now this is what he says, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all, and, uh, all your soul, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. Look at verse 5. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 13, we see that God is testing his people also by someone who is claiming to be a false, uh, claiming to be a real prophet of God, but when they say their prophecy, then uh, they are telling the opposite of what God wants for his people. So God uses this to test them to see what's in their own heart. Are you going to obey my word? Are you going to keep my commandments? Are you going to listen to my voice? Are you going to serve me? Are you going to cling to me? Or are you going to listen to all the other voices vying for your attention? That's the difference. So those who were sent by Yahweh were to be listened to. They were the true prophets. And those who were not sent by Yahweh, they were stoned to death. They were the false prophets. So God clearly, clearly held them in judgment and condemned them before the people. I mean, to be stoned to death is a pretty severe judgment meaning that you have to rid this cancer 
out from your midst, or it will take everything over. Now, now that we have a really a good idea of what a true prophet is, and a really description of a false prophet's activities, we can get back to Second Peter, chapter two, verse number one, because I'm not going to get past verse number one. Matter of fact, I'm not going to get past the whole verse today because I want you to look back there to Second Peter chapter two, verse number one, because it says there in verse. One, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, let me just stop there at that point. Now, here Peter uses the term not false teachers, but I mean, not false prophets, but false teachers. A false teacher is one who teaches what is not true. And by the way, it is the only time this Greek word is used in the Bible, which indicates that there are no more direct, there's no more direct revelation given to man by God. So assuming, all right, indicating that there are no more, after the, the, after the church was laid with the teaching of the apostles and the New Testament prophets, those particular gifts died off the scene. And so now we see that there's no revelation given to man, no more direct revelation given to man, we, because we have it all, because we have God's full revelation in the Old Testament and the apostolic teaching in the New Testament. Now listen to this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh pastor from the past who said who kind of summarized this thought well regarding prophecy and I quote he says once these New Testament documents talking about the manuscripts were written the office of a prophet was no longer necessary in the history of the church trouble has arisen because people thought that they were prophets in the New Testament sense and that they had received special revelation of truth. The answer to that is that view of the New Testament scriptures, there is no need of further truth. That is an absolute proposition. We have all the truth in the New Testament, and we have no need for any revelation, revelations. All has been given everything that is necessary for us is available. Therefore, if any man claims to receive a revelation of some fresh truth, we should suspect him immediately. The need for prophets ends once we have the canon of the New Testament Scripture. We no longer need direct revelation of truth. The Bible is... The truth is in the Bible. That's it. See, that is an excellent, concise quote about what I'm talking about here and what Peter is reflecting here to us in Scripture. Now, why should anyone choose to deflect from what is true and go off and follow a false teacher? Well, Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1, really gives us the reason because 
they will begin to pay attention to deceitful spirits. See, that is the style of teaching they will get exposed to. That is the style of teaching that will tickle their ears. This is the style of teaching that is actually the doctrine of demons, and that is the source of the teaching, that the teaching comes from the pit of hell by teaching that will be deceitfully displayed to people, but it will be displayed as the truth. So the great danger that faces the church, I would say that in every generation, maybe especially in our generation, is that there will be false teachers. And as we approach the end time, there's going to not only be more false teachers, but these teachers are going to gain an audience as we move into Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to see that they deceive many people, that there's large groups of people that are going to follow them, and they are going to gain, gain an audience. But those who are discerning, and we definitely need discernment at this particular point uh, in our study and all the time as a believer because... These teachers are out there, and they are out there in large numbers and gaining larger and larger audiences because people are um, defecting from the truth, and they're going after teachers uh, because they have itching ears for something new and something fresh, and so they are out there. So really, the, the first particular point that I want to look at in Second Peter is that we have to discern the threats of false teachers to the church. It is our responsibility to do that, all of God's people. And the use of the future tense that Peter uses in verses 1 through 3 is really pointing to the fact that just as false prophets were, in, were present in the past, the, the future arrival of false teacher is now here, and the People of God must be ready for them. That is the point here. And he gives actually six reasons to be uh, armed against this threat. And the first thing he says, and the, probably the one that I'm, I'm probably going to stop at this morning after I get done with it, is the first one is this. In verse number one, false teachers cleverly teach destructive heresies. It says who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now, these teachers bringing subtle deviations from the truth. They will infiltrate with, with clever, false ideas into groups of real believers. And that means the attack is not from the outside, the attack is from the inside. Isn't that what Paul said to the people when he had to lead them in Acts chapter 20 where he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They don't care about the flock. They care about themselves. And verse 30 of Acts 20, it says, And from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse or twisted things to draw away disciples after them. See, we have to be skilled enough. Our ears have to be in tuned enough 
to the Word of God, that we have been listening to a proper understanding of truth, that when we hear something off, automatically the antennas go up, the radar goes on and say, that doesn't sound right. How come it doesn't sound right? And you go back to the Word of God and you're running through Scripture. In other words, their words that they speak do not square with the Bible. See, that, that is where you begin to put up a defense against the threat. And the term in our passage, secretly, has the idea of creeping along under some sort of cover. That these teachers were not hiding their teaching, but were but really covering up the, uh, the degree to which their teaching differed from the apostolic teaching. So that's what we have to be grounded in. We have to be grounded in the, the, the teaching of the authoritative apostles that have been given to the church and have now taken the Word of God and written it down, and that's what we're to study. We don't need any more revelation. So in other words... What they are introducing is not that easy to catch because it is packaged in Christian lingo. Especially, it's not easy to catch, especially if you're not familiar with Scripture and a sound understanding of it. See, so that means young Christians are going to be vulnerable to this. Uh, people who are, haven't been adding to their faith the things in, of, of Second Peter there and becoming stable in their faith, they're going to be vulnerable to these things. And we're talking about real believers being vulnerable to false teaching. However, their teaching does not have a sanctifying effect, but has a destructive effect. Because that's what it says, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. What they introduce is not healthy because their teaching aims at denying essential doctrines ultimately, like the Trinity and, and uh, the deity of Christ and the person of Christ as recorded in Scripture, the substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, the return of Christ. We, we're going to find out that they were not even believing the return of Christ and, and therefore teaching. Ah, everything's the same as it was from the beginning. Nothing's changed. Well, that's not true at all because they don't read the Scripture. They don't study the Scripture and get God's message. They mess it up and put all their own stuff into it. They add to it. They take away from it. They twist it from what is already written in Scripture. And the noun, actually, the noun form of the word heresy uh, Heresies here carries the meaning of a view or an opinion, a doctrine that one chooses for one's self and thereby separates oneself from the whole body of those who choose to believe differently. So in other words, they do choose to believe differently. They take a different way, a different spin on what they are looking at from Scripture. Walter Martin, uh, who wrote Kingdom of the Cults, great little book, uh, actually a large book, uh, he said this, it is possible for Jehovah Witnesses, a Christian scientist, or a Mormon, for example, to utilize the terminology 
of biblical Christianity with absolute freedom, having already resigned these terms in a theological framework of his own making and to his own liking, but almost always at direct variance with historically accepted meanings of terms. And this is what you have to do all the time, is they're talking, uh, they're, they're sounding like biblical Christians, but their terms are all defined in their own way. Not in biblical way, but in their own way. So their teachings then are damning. They're, de- they're destructive. They pervert and falsify the way of truth and lead to eternal damnation in hell. Now, I was a Roman Catholic uh, before I became a Christian. The Lord opened my eyes to see, brought me to the Word of God to, to see what He has taught. And if we take the example of Roman Catholicism, we'll see that Roman Catholicism has numerous heresies within their doctrine. All right, what they do is they exalt Mary to the rank of co-redemptrix as, as, as a savior equal to Christ. They, they claim uh, claims of priests that can turn a wafer and wine into the body, the blood, the soul, the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the repeated unbloody sacrifice of the Mass, you won't find that in Scripture. Matter of fact, all, if they read the book of Hebrews, they would have to bunk all of that and throw it all out. It offers also, if a price of money is paid, of course, to get people out of their made-up doctrine of purgatory and into heaven. Don't know how long you're going to spend there. Don't know how long you're going to burn off the things. But it it is definitely a front to the finished and complete work of Christ on the cross. That is just one thing to throw out to you. And it has been, of course, a burr in my saddle ever since I've been a believer because they use also biblical terms with different definitions. They mean different things when we talk to them, and we, we seem to have similar language, but we don't. I don't believe that. Uh, well, let me just move on to a, another one that is more up-to-date, at least for, um, for us today, and it's that of... Um, now, of course, we as Christians are to discern who are Christ's real disciples, and accept them. But we also have to keep in mind that we, we never are, are relieved from the responsibility to discern the spirits or what's going on. We are to be always discerning, and we must be aware that there are those who pirate the name of Jesus Christ for evil purposes. And of course, one movement that is definitely gaining ground today is the movement of the Word of Faith movement. Uh, the charismatic, old charismatic movement really has been less than 100 years old. The new apostolic reformation movement. All these movements, number one, one of the main areas of the movement is that there are still apostles and there are still prophets. Now, brethren, there are a multitude of false teachers, both men and women, who are preaching a false gospel uh, in these movements. I want to mention one uh, this morning, and if not, I will just get back at that, to that next week. But I, there, there are some criticisms that they, uh, the Word of Faith movement has when it comes to their own 
people or their own teachers and their own prophets. And the first criticism they have is this, you shall not judge. And they take Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, and they say that you are not to judge uh, those who are uh, prophets and teachers. You're not to judge them. You don't have the ability to judge them. And yet, the Bible tells us in that same passage of Scripture, it really is telling us that we are to judge, but we're to judge without being a hypocrite. It means not to judge hypocritically. We are to be cautious when we do judge others. We have to be careful in judging others. And of course, we have to exercise discernment with biblical parameters, but at the same time, they say not to judge, and the Bible is really saying, no, you ought to judge with discernment. And then even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, what specific scripture tells Christians that they are to be discerning? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 says, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil, and when you do that, of course, you are going to be one who, uh, who is able to test everything. So discernment of what? Discernment of truth and falsehood, discernment of what is good and what is evil, discernment of right and wrong, and then once we discern it, we're to hold the fast to that which is good and true, and we're to abstain from that which is evil and not true. And of course, in doing so, the apostle uh, John t- told us that, listen, we are to test the spirits in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we are to test everything, the words of the teaching, and compare them to the obje- objective standard uh, of the word of God. And then we are to, of course, uh, realize that these imitations and deceptions are from Satan, and he is behind the words and the, disease, the, the deeds and the appearances. For even in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, it says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So again, th- these are destructive heresies that want to divide, split, and cause havoc in the church, and we are to expose fraudulent leaders and teachers, whether they're on the radio, whether on their internet, whether, you know, because of the speed of com- communication and of all the publications that are, that are out there, the error is actually spreading quickly. And so we have to be ready to judge those things to see whether something is true or something is false. Now, I guess because of the time, I have to leave it right there this morning. I'm going to pick that up next week as we look further into uh, some what it says in Scripture about the other reasons that we are to uh, be ready against this threat and be prepared for it because it is amongst us. But until then, let's pray.